Welcome to Think Business Futures. On this show, we take cutting-edge business research and couple it with real-world examples to explore what is actually happening in the business, finance and marketing world. I'm Nicole Sutton, lecturer in accounting at the UTS Business School. I'm David Brown, professor in the business school as well. A few years ago, I read a book by a scholar and statistician named Nassim Taleb. The book is called Fool by Randomness. And in the book, he's got this really great story about, and this is as I remember it, about a neighbor of his who works in finance and was making lots of money in the financial markets. And Nassim happened to have a PhD in mathematical finance. And he was doing okay, but the guy across the street seemed to be doing a bit better. And as I remember the story, his wife suggested to him that uh, maybe he could turn his attention to making a bit more money uh, as well because the guy across the street seemed to have a better German car than he did and uh, that would be a sort of a good thing. So it's basically, come on, smart guy, you think you know what you're doing, you go make the big bucks too. Anyway, Nassim's response, as I remember it, was that the guy was just kind of lucky. There'd be a reversion to the mean. He's not going to stick with making money like this for very long. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. The central argument was that we overemphasize our ability and our insight, particularly in areas of causal reasoning, and we underemphasize the role of randomness and perhaps what we might describe as luck. Now, I've been thinking about this idea of luck and randomness ever since I read this book. And luckily, today, we've got an expert in the studio who can tell us how this works and how he actually tested this. Professor Lionel Page is a professor of economics at the UTS Business School, and he studies the role that luck plays in our outcomes. Welcome, Lionel. Thank you. In order to understand how we overemphasize and over-reward luck, there are a couple of ideas that we need to get on top of first. So, Lionel, could you tell us what is the informativeness principle? Well, it's a principle in uh, contract theory in economics. So one problem uh, we have in economics when we think about contracts is that when you want to hire somebody to do a job, you can never be sure about exactly all the conditions this person will face to do the job. So if you think that you want to hire somebody to do a task, and this person can always come back and you know face uh, unforeseen events. So a student, for instance, uh, may lose his um, or her papers in the train, and that's not, you know, that's, this kind of thing happen. And so this person will not be able to deliver on the task. So, sorry, it's kind of like the dog ate my homework. Exactly. So, you know, that you, you, it's hard for you to know when, when it is uh, a made-up story, and you will never be able to exactly know the, the constraints that somebody faced when somebody is doing a job. And you can't write contracts which specifies all what somebody has to do. And, and for this con- reason, the contracts are incomplete. So the question is, how do you set up uh, a contract? How do you reward people for what they do, knowing that you will never be able for sure to know that people did the best they could do on the job? So the informativeness principle has been proposed by uh, Armstrong, an economist. And he said that to incentivize people to do the right thing, you should always reward any signal of performance, any signal which is informative about the performance. And, you, and the more informative a signal is, the more you should reward it. Even if it's, it's not clearly, you know, it, there may be an uncertainty, you need to reward it. So, for instance, if a student comes and says, my, the dog ate my uh, work, well, that may be true. But in some ways, the informativeness principle says that you should still kind of uh, penalize a person for this, what, what happened, because that's the best way to prevent this person to come up with these stories, because it's convenient. So can we go back to these different signals and signals which are informative and which ones which are uninformative? Right. Can you explain the distinction between the two? Well, 
I mean, a signal is anything that you can observe, which uh, tells you something about what's likely happened. So, you know, when you think about, for instance, in companies, um, companies managers have KPIs. These are kind of informative signals because obviously the KPI is something that you want to observe as a way to signal that the performance is good. What you want is people to do the job conscientiously, to be motivated, to, uh, I don't know, if you are in a profit sector, you want people to work in the best way to increase the profit of the firm. If you are in a non-profit organization, you may have all the goals, but it's hard to exactly know how people, you know, what is the right thing to do. So what you are going to look at things that you can observe. And a KPI is typically that. It's something that you can observe and then you can reward it because you can observe it. So tell us about outcome bias. Well, outcome bias is, is the idea that when you judge whether somebody did something well or not well, you may be overly influenced by the final outcome that you observe. People, for instance, let's say that somebody has to do a task and, and this person is going to do some effort to do the task, but this person will also face unforeseen events, helpful or unhelpful events. And then you you don't know, you're not sure exactly what you know these unforeseen events, what they may be, because you just observe from, from afar. And so when you see this person's outcome, the question is, the outcome bias is the idea that often you may be overly influenced by the outcome to judge whether somebody did the right thing or not. And it's an old idea, I mean, fairly old idea, which was studied in psychology in the 80s. And you find this bias, the psychologists have found in small studies, that if you think in terms, of, for instance, of uh, medical uh, situations, like a doctor d does a surgery, and the question is, is it to did the doctor do well during the surgery? Well, people will be overly influenced whether the surgery went well or whether the patient actually died. Okay, And obviously, the patient could die because of unforeseen and, and, and unlucky uh, events, uh, independent of the action of, of ah, the Ah, see, this to me, I think, is probably the key bit, right? Like, because to me, I'm listening, I'm going... Yeah, I'm probably going to judge whether or not the surgeon's done a good job or not just on the basis of whether or not you live or die. Right. But, but you're saying that it's actually, if we were to evaluate their process, for example, exactly. when we're going to evaluate their process, the surgeon could have done the exact same exactly. procedure, the exact same quality, but depending on the outcome, which could be influenced by other factors, that's actually, we're going to overweight the outcome depending on whether or not it was a good or bad outcome. So can you then tell us about the relation between this informativeness principle and outcome bias? Well, so when you want, suppose we want to study outcome bias. Uh, so as I said, psychologists used a lot of small scenarios and, and with the intuition that people have this outcome bias. And the studies that emerged from psychology is that indeed it looks like people, when you give scenarios to people like the surgeon scenarios, people overweight the outcome. And you've seen that in other um, domains like ethical things, like, you know, if, if somebody does... A bad action. Uh, if by you know, let's say you you throw something from uh, your um, from a flat in um, in in the street. Well, if it falls on the street and nothing is nobody is hurt, it's going to be judged much less uh, bad than if you actually fall the head of somebody. Somebody died. Mm. Okay. So you did exactly the same action with the same kind of information. You didn't look before throwing. Mm -hmm. And and what happened next? People are going to judge your initial action as a function of whether it harmed people or not. So they had a lot of these scenarios and it gives us a lot of ideas that it's likely to happen. But if you think about 
outcome bias in the real world with real people making decisions about the performance of others, that is very difficult because if you think, for instance, about a manager uh, looking at the performance of an employee, well, for me as a researcher to assess whether the manager has an outcome bias, I would need to know the prior knowledge of the manager about the employee, which I may not have. So, you know, the manager may know a lot of things about the employee already that I don't. And then the manager will have a specific angle, will have a specific way of acquiring the knowledge about what the employee is doing, even if I, as a researcher, I can collect a lot of data. And so when I see the decision from the manager, it's very hard for me to to point the finger and say, you know, I think you, you're biased because maybe the manager knows better things than me. So, for instance, if I see that relative to my model, the manager over-reward an employee for success. Is it that the manager is wrong or my model is not as good as the manager? So that's a big question. So what we looked at uh, in our study, and then that's the connection with the informativeness principles, we thought, can we try to find a situation where we find a violation of the informativeness principle, that is the manager, for instance, would reward an action, uh, even though the um, the action or the signal of performance is, is actually not informative about performance. So that's we try to find some situations where people would really reward it for what they do, even, even though what they do actually is not informative about their performance. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download the show, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcasting app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about over-rewarding luck in business, law and on the sporting field. So you've actually undertaken an experiment to try and test the nature of this relationship between how informative signals are and the kind of outcome bias that you see. Could you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so we were we were interested in, in finding situations where the outcome itself would not be informative because whether somebody overweight an outcome is very hard to tell. But if we could find a situation where the outcome it, itself is not really informative about the performance, well, let's say the outcome is purely due to luck, so, you know, if I was to, to make you successful or not based on a lottery ticket, and then after I see how your manager is rewarding you, and I, f- I see that the reward manager is rewarding you when you win the lottery, I could safely say that the manager is, uh, has an outcome bias. So we're looking for such situations in the real world. And what we thought in sports, you can have situations where the difference between a success and a failure is, is very, very small. And so we thought about the, the situation in, in, in football, in soccer, where a footballer tries to score and hit the ball, the ball goes toward the goal, and instead of getting in or out, it hits the post first. And so when it hits the post, then you have two situations. Either the ball is going to bounce off the post, out of the goal, or bounce in the goal, and it's going to be a goal. And what intuition here was that, you know, in a competitive match, when, when players hit the ball from 10, 20 meters away, uh, at high speed, in you know, obviously under pressure, etc., they don't have much control to precisely pinpoint the location of the ball, and so uh, basically, there's a lot of randomness uh, in the trajectory, and you can see it when you watch a match. You know, sometimes the ball goes like way above uh, the goal, etc., and so because of this randomness, they don't control exactly the location. The difference between the ball bouncing off and bouncing in is unlikely to be due to uh, skills. That is pretty much if you put the ball on the post. Uh, whether it goes in or out, it's unlikely that the best players were able to precisely locate, place the ball inside, and, and not as good players would have put the ball outside. Which means that if the players who put the ball in or out are fairly similar, you know, and, and because, of, because of the randomness of the ball trajectory, then the outcome 
is not linked with the performance. Uh, and the performance <laughs> of the football player is to have decided to hit the ball at that time and to have hit in a way which reached precisely this kind of location. So what else? So now you've got this setting. What are right. you looking for then? Well, so the first thing we had is we had to find the data. Uh, and so we contacted uh, the company uh, Opta, which is... Uh, so when you watch TV, uh, football match on TV, you'll have infographic with um, stats, right? Mm -hmm. And so this company, we, we got the data and we asked specifically, we just we said, we just want data on shots, which is the post. Part of the data they have is, is I think, uh, based on, on cameras and although you have uh, people um, coding the data. And, and, and so they have the information whether the ball hit the post. And they have the information about where the shot was taken. And so we, we got this data and we asked as much as we could. So we, we got about 13,000 shots which hit the post over five major European leagues. And so that's the data we had. And with this, we also got, you know, what happened in this match, what happened in the next match, whether the players get more playing time in the next match. And also we got data on, on the journalist ratings. So, you know, journalists often rate players oh, at amazing. the end of the match. Yeah. And so we got all these data. So the... Uh, outcome bias that you're dealing with then is how managers and journalists and maybe fans interpret whether the ball went in or went out. That's exactly this. So what's fascinating in this setting is that unlike in an organization where lots of the work that people do is unobserved. So, you know, if you ask somebody, you could please write me this report and this person comes back, you don't know whether this person worked a lot on it or this person didn't work a lot or worked a lot and found it very easy. So you don't have this information. And compared to a football match, you have many, many cameras. All what the footballers are doing is observed. So you think, like, there shouldn't be any outcome bias. In theory, there shouldn't be any outcome bias due to the overwhelming amount of data being collected on the soccer pitch. Similarly, Australian rules football relies on data to make decisions about who to put on the field. But there's still potential for bias around the interpretation of that data. You know, we're naturally pattern seekers, so it's about finding whatever pattern you can and calling that momentum or calling it, you know, a hot streak, whatever you want to call it. That's Darren O'Shaughnessy, a sports analyst for the St Kilda Football Club. He's been interpreting data for the AFL for a long time, and he's familiar with the confirmation bias on the field. Can you then explain to the uninitiated what role mm. does data analytics play in Aussie rules football? It's been part of the fabric of the game for a long time that um, we know that we want our very best players to get the ball and use it about 30 times per game. Um, so that's just a simple count of the statistics. Within a lot of different dimensions, I think Champion Data now records oh, probably a couple of hundred different statistics on the game and they have a team of nine or ten people on each game who are not just capturing what's happening with the ball but um, anything that you can think of that would add to that information that a coach would need or that the, um, the public needs because the public in Australian football is also quite attuned to numbers and to making comparisons among players based on their output. What is the data used for at a managerial level, at a, at a coaching level? Yeah, so we've got quite a few different areas. So in terms of that match day data, we use that um, to analyse our strategies, whether they worked, whether our next opposition is going to use certain tactics and how successful those might be. We look at it certainly for recruiting, um, for you know, which players in our opposition teams we might want to target or even in 
uh, lower level competitions to get those players through the draft. There's analytics going on in the other departments of the, the football club as well. So we have a significant sports science department, strength and conditioning, fitness, physical performance. All of those things are heavily monitored. There's actually too much data to, to know <laughs> what to do with some of it. So you're, you're probably then familiar with uh, something that uh, Lionel discussed, which is outcome bias. Are you familiar with outcome bias? And it's even more enhanced in sport from what I've seen because when you're performing a physical action on the field, they have this real sense of agency. Whatever happened when they had the ball or when they were near the ball, they were responsible for it. So to impose a level of chance on that or of... Um, you know, you weren't solely responsible for that outcome, even though it's obvious there were opponents that were trying to prevent you from doing that. Mm. If, if you introduce that narrative, a lot of them are quite resistant to it. Um, it is changing over time, but outcome bias is where they start. It's, uh, we just had a goal scored on us. How did that happen? What went wrong? Mm. Don't worry about the 10 times where things went wrong that we didn't get scored against. Just, you know, this was the worst possible outcome. This is one we need to look at. And so you're kind of in this position as, as an a data analyst where you've got the numbers, the numbers tell a story, a particular story, and then that butts right up against the story that it butts up against the story that we tell ourselves as fans, as players, as managers. Exactly. And the stories are important because that's the way that a coach coaches his players or her players. It's about constructing motivating stories, which are often based on the numbers or the, um, the information that they've received from you know, the statisticians or the the computer systems. So um, we need to be honest with that data. And, and even though we know the uncertainty, one of the use cases, I guess, of that data is to provide propaganda for the coach to say, right, when we did this, it actually worked six times out of eight or whatever it is. You can tell the player that. This use of data as propaganda translates to decisions at every level, from the players on the field to the managers calling the shots to the fans in the stadium. It's motivation, it's building confidence that the way that we're playing is the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that that player has approached a contest was the right way because it was successful this amount of times. Now, if, you know, if we get better quality data that um, provides context that says over time that strategy wasn't working, the coach is open-minded and can take that on and then the story changes. But the, the culture of football has been to use the data to help tell those stories to motivate back to the research, Lionel found that even with the availability of data and observation of shots on goal, outcome bias nonetheless appears in performance evaluation. So what we do, we, we looked at, the first thing we looked at is whether the managers decide to give more playing time in the next match to the player who scored versus players who didn't score after hitting the post. So getting playing time, more playing time is like a reward or recognition of performance? So, yeah, so it could be two. It could be, it could be a reward, but it could be also that, you know, I believe that you're a better player. So I have a huge incentive as a manager to put the best player on the pitch. Mm -hmm. So if, if I, you know, I shouldn't, maybe I can reward you uh, with playing time, but also I, I, I typically I would select the best player. So it's really about getting the best players on the pitch and the manager then has made the assumption getting in the ball in the net despite the fact that we know it's luck is actually a re result of them being the best player right so so what the manager is going to see is that this player scored a goal and and that's going to be punished positively and i guess when you almost scored a goal you hit the post and didn't get in well you don't get much the same kind of reward or consideration from your manager even though pretty much you did almost the same as the person who, who hit the post and and, and the ball went in 
So when you look at all the data over all the players, the effect is, is here. It's a bit small. It's, you, you have like three minutes, three minutes more playing time. Now, interestingly, when you look at a, a, a bit further, you see two things. You see first that some goals are more kind of important than others. And then the, the next thing we do, we, we, we say, okay, you know, often the, the teams are pretty stable. So you have a, a starting 11, you know, the main players. Half the player who play the most, they play 90% of the match. Okay, so, so the best players always play. So we thought, okay, these people, you know, whether they score or not, because they always play, there's not much margin to change the playing time. What about the person who are a bit just at the margin or the outside? People would kind of in and out and the fate is unclear. So we looked at the 50% of players who play the least. And when you look at these ones, then the effect overall moved to five minutes overall and to seven minutes when this was a goal which made a difference between a draw and a win. Wow. And then when you look at the... 25% of players who play the least, they're really on the margin. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting to get in the team. Then the effect uh, goes up to 11 minutes or actually 12 minutes when they made a difference between a draw and a win. So you yeah. can see that's a huge impact. If you are on the margin of the team and you try to, to make you know, your way into the starting 11, if you happen to score after hitting the post, that's a huge impact on your chance to, to, to play next time. Lionel, so you've convinced us in a really great experimental setting that outcome bias exists. You've got all the information in the world and luck generally drives the way the signal has been received and interpreted and decisions are made. So what's interesting for us as organisational researchers then is what does this look like in organisations? Do we see outcome bias in organisations? Is luck over-rewarded? Look, I think that's what the initial motivation and to use the setting in sports to say something about other um, organizations. And, and the starting point to consider is what I say, that if you get an outcome bias in a situation like a football pitch, if you see outcome bias here, it says something about how pervading it is potentially going to be in organizations when you have much less information about the performance of people. And so my feeling, obviously, uh, more studies should, should be done, but uh, given the initial psychological studies on outcome bias and given this, this study, I suspect that, yes, like outcome bias is likely to be pervading in organizations and that luck is going to be very important, uh, a very important factor in success. So I, I will give you an example, for instance. You, let's say you arrive in an organization and you, you are allocated to a team. Well, you may be allocated to a good team, a performing team, uh, a functional team, and the team is going to be successful. And your performance is going to be assessed as part of this success, you know, as a consequence of this success. And your allocation initially was not due to your choice. So, you know, there's this element of luck. And in another scenario, you enter the company and you're allocated to a team where, let's say, there are some conflicts and people don't get along very well together. And, and for that reason, the team is not as performing. Well, your performance, your assessment about how well you're doing is going to be judged as a function of the success of this team. And so two identical people may have different or already starting path in, in the organization because of these kind of things which are not in their control. So there would be some pretty high-profile examples of where clearly luck has played uh, an enormous role in outcomes, and yet there's been this attribution of decision-making, intentionality, and so on. So I sort of think, for example, of CEOs and companies who've got great big bonuses for great lots of performance, but maybe, in fact, that's less to do with the CEO and decision-making more to do with luck. 
Yeah, well, and, and here you, you go back to the argument by Nassim uh, Taleb, right? He, it's clear that it's very hard in these situations to disentangle what is luck and what is performance. And, and one thing that you observe when you look at the very top of successful people like CEOs or traders, one thing you have is what's called the survival bias, which is that you, you observe the few people who have been very successful and you don't observe, you don't see the many, many, many people who tried to be successful and never made it. And so that's also an outcome bias because, you know, you look at the people who have been successful and, and then you attribute all the success to them and their choice and the right decisions they make at the right time. Well, actually, and, and I'm not saying they didn't make right decisions, but, you know, if, if, if a thousand people take a lottery ticket and one win, uh, the decision to take a lottery ticket was not necessarily the decision that you should follow mm. to become rich. Mm. So I can see one of the problems then is then we start to attribute certain characteristics to successful people because we start to characterise, we see this characteristic, say, in the footballers that just happen to be able to hit the post and get it in, or the CEO of these successful companies, and we start to see these characteristics. And I imagine the danger then is we then actually start to preference people that have the characteristics of the people who were previously lucky. Because I can imagine then then you start to get this kind of this vicious cycle where the, you're preferencing people that look like the lucky guy, but, but we don't say it's a lucky guy. We say it's a successful person, and then they actually start to get more opportunities, and then you actually kind of get kind of a homogeneity of the people who get these, these sorts of opportunities. Often when you look at the motivational uh, talks, like on TED Talks, for instance, or this kind of thing, um, People say, you know, I've made it, so you can make it. Here's the recipe for success. Never stop, always try. And you may think, okay, so, you know, I mean, if you fail, try again, and that this person succeed like that. But that may not be the right recipe for success. I mean, like, let's say that you, you try something and it's way above your capacity. Well, maybe the right thing to do is just to reassess what, you know, and say, oh, maybe I was overconfident. So actually, I should do something else. And so when you look at these people who've made it and they tell you this, this, this advice, you know, I'm going to be you know, stubborn and always do the same thing. Well, that's not necessarily very informative about what's going to work in general. What else is kind of the problem if we are over-rewarding luck? Like, so, so we don't judge performance correctly and, and we think highly of these lucky footballers or these lucky CEOs or these lucky entrepreneurs. What's the problem? So I'd say there's, there's, you can see several problems. One problem is the problem of, of uh, the risk that it can create. So if you over-reward luck, uh, potentially in a, it incentivizes people to take a lot of risk because if what just matters is being successful, then it's not so much working well. It's just you know having a chance of, of making it. And then there's also um, a, a concern about fairness in, in, in allocation of talents in, in, in a company or in an organization. So you want, for instance, to promote people who are more likely to do their job well. So if you have, if you if an organization suffers from an outcome bias, you're going to reward people who happen to be lucky. And not only they may not be the best person for the job, they just happen to be lucky, but also, um, you know, there's an issue of fairness. That is, some people who may be more deserving will be uh, will miss out. So we can see that this is systematic. We can see that it's a pretty significant problem when you start thinking through those implications. Is there anything we can actually do about this? I mean, what what can we do in organisations to deal with this attribution bias? Yeah, well, look, I think it is hard because, as I say, if you observe it on a football pitch where the managers arguably are motivated to pick the best players because, you know, their job is often on the line, it suggests that it's difficult and, and it's unlikely that there's just easy recipes. Um, if there are, we've not found them. Um, but at least what you... I think it would be good to educate decision-makers, 
people have to assess the performance of others on this type of bias and and to try to tell them that there is this risk and they should focus more on process the process of how decisions and performance occur rather than outcome only outcome i mean outcome is usually in our case of football the outcome was not informative because we looked at this very specific situation but in most organizations outcome is informative so so you should take into account outcome but people should be warned that maybe uh, they they may take give too much weight to outcome so they should focus on process and it's difficult because outcome are very observable and process as one of the difficult process like what is a good performance process you have the kpis but kpis as we know they have, they have the same kind of they are imperfect but educating uh, decision makers i think that and trying to tell them to make them aware of this risk so to tie it back to where we started then it's really about getting uh, the right kind of information so the this informative principle, the right kind of information in the process and the outcome, and then being able to make the judgment as to whether the outcome was luck or the result of skill and capability. Yeah, so I guess one thing you would want to do is whenever you see an outcome, you would want the decision maker trying to assess the performance to think about the potential that luck played in the process and, and be aware that you know you, you took this, this road, you took this path and it was not successful well, maybe there, there was things it was not in your control. And then you should not, the informativeness principle says, you should not be rewarded or punished for things which were completely outside of your control. In the um, trading industry, in, in for financial traders, for instance, they are chasing big bonuses. And so one strategy they can have is instead, you know, they could work very well to find the best strategy, but another strategy is just uh, to try to have a portfolio which has a lot of variance. So if I, if I have a portfolio which is very, very volatile, I may increase my chance of hitting the jackpot because, you know, maybe I'm going to have a terrible outcome, but maybe I have a chance of having a huge, um, uh, very successful portfolio, which is going to give me the bonus. So having uh, situations where people are over-rewarded for being lucky may induce people to take more risk because that's what they want. They just chase the outcome rather than chasing the actual performance, you know, the uh, daily right thing to do. I'm also wondering, so we kind of, we have a sense that, you know, the people who are judging the performance from the outside have this outcome bias um, in the sense that they are over-rewarding luck and not properly assessing the performance of the person. Can we flip it and think about it from the perspective of the person themselves? So in your experiment, it would be the footballer or it would be the lucky entrepreneur or the lucky trader. Do they have a realistic and accurate uh, impression of their own performance? Look, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, even though we didn't look at this in our study, what we know from psychology is um, that there is what we call attribution bias. And, and it means that whenever you reflect on your performance and whether you did well or not, whenever you're successful, you tend to see it as due to your decisions, to your, you know, your actions. So... If you, you go to an exam at the university and you get a good grade, well, it's because you worked hard and you're pretty smart. But then if you get to the exam and you have a bad grade, maybe because you were sick, you didn't have time to work as hard as you would have wanted. Or maybe the teacher didn't understand your good yeah, answers. Yeah, the teacher just set a terrible exam. So you're going to look for external causes to explain your bad performances and you're going to uh, attribute your good performance to your actions. So I have no doubt that supposing you're a footballer and, and you hit a ball and the ball goes in, 
you know, you say, well, that's a goal. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good striker. I mean, I think that's what people would like would tend to react. Um, and if the ball goes out, we we'll say, oh, that was a very good shot. Oh, bad luck, it was not in. And I think you would have that in organization as well. Yep. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> that brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. Our executive producer is Jason Lequeer. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. And you can also search for us on your favourite podcasting app. Lionel, that was fantastic. I now understand a little bit more about what Nassim Talib was telling us in that book. It has been so good talking to you. Thank you very much.